0: Hi, this is Jason Greenblatt on The Diplomat, brought to you by Newsweek. Today, I was so glad to have as my guest, Senator Joe Lieberman. A main focus of today's podcast was to discuss Iran and some of our friends and allies in the Middle East, including Saudi Arabia and Israel. I especially wanted to hear Senator Lieberman's thoughts relating to the comments made by Senator Chris Murphy in a podcast interview Senator Murphy gave on August 10th. When I started working at the White House and met with the leadership of the countries throughout the Middle East, one theme that I heard was that these countries ultimately felt abandoned by the Obama administration. Senator Murphy's comments from the August 10th podcast by the Center for Strategic and International Studies troubled me, because to me it sounded like we intended to lessen our support of our important allies and friends such as Saudi Arabia and even take a hard approach with some of these allies, and perhaps worse, look the other way with respect to the Iranian regime and its desire to control the region around it. I sought Senator Lieberman's thoughts about some of Senator Murphy's comments, and I think you'll find his insight important. This interview was recorded just before the Taliban took over Afghanistan with lightning speed, including taking control over Kabul. Senator Lieberman, you have a long, distinguished career in politics, serving as a U.S. Senator in so many other roles over the decades. Let me start today by um, thanking you for your decades of public service. Our country has benefited from it. Um, the United States has benefited from it tremendously. So thank you for that. And uh, Jason,
1: thanks. It's great to be on with you. Incidentally, let me thank you for your years of public service, which were uh, shorter than mine, but I would say you achieved at least as much as I did. So uh, I'm very grateful to you.
0: Thank you, sir. I really appreciate that. Let's jump to one of the hot topics of today, Iran. Uh, JCPOA, uh, successor to JCPOA, what would you tell the Biden administration should be happening today? And and I don't mean, you know, the things he said during the campaign, that President Biden said during the campaign, but today, given what has unfolded since President Biden was inaugurated, what's your advice to President Biden?
1: Yeah, I I think your question is is phrased really well. I mean, uh, there there was a way in which I thought the uh, Biden campaign position was kind of a continuation of uh, the position of the Obama-Biden administration on the Iran nuclear agreement and in a way, a continuation of a kind of disagreement between the Trump administration and the Obama administration. Uh, I, I happened on that one too as you know agreed with the trump administration i thought the iran nuclear agreement was a bad one from the beginning it didn't do what we in congress uh, 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 intended when we adopted all those economic sanctions against iran which was that they'd be used to uh, get Iran to stop their nuclear program and the jcpoa just um, accepted them putting the brakes on for a short while, also gave them too much money to use to support terrorism and all the rest. But but now, uh, in addition to the essential, I think, uh, unfairness and, and ineffectiveness of the JCPOA, we have the increasingly uh, extreme and hostile reaction of uh, the Iranian regime, the Supreme Leader Khamenei and now the new President Ibrahim uh, Raisi, who's a, a mass murderer, really. And uh, uh, I think uh, the the Iranian regime is acting as if it thinks it can say and do anything and the Biden administration so wants to get back into this agreement uh, that, that they'll still go ahead and negotiate on terms that are favorable to Iran. I hope not. I'd say to President Biden, uh, Mr. President, you have said you want human rights to be at the and democracy to be at the center of your foreign policy. You'd be hard pressed to find a country in the world where the government so suppresses human rights and uh, is anti-democratic than uh, the Islamic Republic of Iran. So uh, it, they're they're just not worth it, and unless they really change and and in, in return for ending sanctions agree really to stop their nuclear program, stop their missile development, stop their aggression in the Middle East, and stop their terrible repression uh, of their own people, then uh, they don't deserve to have another nuclear agreement or any agreement with us. The truth is that we ought to begin to let them know that we're going to support opposition to their regime. And in that sense, the end of the regime, which we did with the Soviet Union, certainly under President Reagan, uh, for, for quite a long time and quite effectively.
0: Yeah, and you mentioned their new president, who is, as you say, a mass murderer. who's was responsible for the murder of roughly 30,000 Iranians back in 1988. What do right. you say to our European friends and allies who purport to value human rights and all that? I mean, how do they do business with a country who has this man as a president?
1: Yeah, I mean, I'd say to our friends and allies in Europe that you you, you you've got to be you've got to look at what's going on on the ground in Iran and not just be so uh, infatuated with the idea of going back to some kind of agreement with Iran uh, that that you, you miss the reality of it. Uh, these these people are not uh, who run Iran today uh, don't have values consistent with European values, American values, democratic values, human rights values. I mean, I, I, I uh, have said, and I know it's a stark comparison, but, but I believe it, that any agreement negotiated with a regime headed by Khamenei and uh, Raisi uh, would produce an agreement that, that would be worth as much as that piece of paper that Neville Chamberlain brought back from Munich uh, with him in 1938. I mean, he waved it around and said it would bring peace in our time, and of course, what it did was lead to World War II, and that's about what an agreement uh, would be worth with this regime. So I'd say, wake up! Come on, just be realistic, and uh, you know, don't, don't, don't deceive yourself for what seems like a, a, a short-term uh, diplomatic victory, which is really an enormously consequential long-term defeat for peace and freedom.
0: Let's bring this conversation a little bit closer to home now, related okay. to Iran. In mid-July, a New York federal court unsealed an indictment charging four Iranian nationals with conspiracies related to kidnapping. According to court document, these Iranians conspired to kidnap a Brooklyn journalist here on U.S. soil for mobilizing public opinion in Iran and around the world to bring about change to the Iranian regime's laws and practices. Why aren't people paying more attention to this? It hit the news a little bit, and then it just faded away.
1: Yeah, I, I don't know why they're not paying more attention to it, because it's really an outrage. I mean, at, at a, another time in history, it might be a cause, as it might be a cause for a war by the U.S., certainly for a military reaction uh, against Iran, basically for coming into our country, violating our sovereignty, and uh, arresting an Iranian-American, an American. Uh, that was the goal. Unfortunately, thanks to our law enforcement, and intelligence, we were able to uh, stop it. But um, imagine what little respect uh, this country uh, shows for the U.S. And, and it's so important for more people to focus on that, uh, particularly the ones who support the, uh, this effort to renegotiate a nuclear agreement with Iran. I, I tell you, Jason, the one thing that does encourage me over time is that if you look at public opinion polls, uh, of the American people, they get it. They, they understand that we cannot trust Iran. They are our enemy. Uh, they're the enemy to our allies, such as Israel uh, and the, and the uh, Arab countries. And uh, it's just foolish uh, uh, and worse, uh, dangerous to negotiate with this kind of regime.
0: You raise a great point about an enemy to our allies, Israel and the Arab countries. In a podcast on August 10th from the Center for Strategic and International Studies, Senator Chris Murphy, the chair of the Senate Foreign Relations Subcommittee focusing on Middle East issues, said that he believes the U.S. should deprioritize Iran deterrence and urge Saudi Arabia to come to terms with Hezbollah's influence in Lebanon. He asked, how much does it matter to the U.S. what share of power Iran and Saudi Arabia have in the region Ten or twenty years from now, I think those statements are dangerous for the U.S. and, in particular, our friends and allies, as you talk about. Of course, Saudi Arabia, Israel, UAE, and others. I also wonder what he would say about Israel and Egypt having to come to terms with Hamas and Gaza, because it's logical to that that would be a follow-up thought of his. What do you think about those comments?
1: Well, I was really troubled by those comments, and I—I I, I mean, I know Chris Murphy for a long time. He's from Connecticut. He—he he actually replaced me. He sits in my seat uh, in the US Senate. Um, So uh, I I was really disappointed. And and it's part of a pattern that Senator Murphy has had on this kind of issue. But it but it really, uh, it takes a kind of almost immoral or or a relativist foreign policy that cannot uh, distinguish between our friends and our allies, and and uh, our friends and allies based on the, the morality of our values. Uh, and also, of course, our interests. So does it matter to uh, the United States if 10 or 20 years from now, Iran or Saudi Arabia are more powerful? It does. I understand Iran is not a a perfect, I'm sorry, that Saudi Arabia is not a perfect country, but um, right now it happens to be modernizing. Uh, It's a society opening up, reforming its relations uh, with uh, Israel though not as publicly uh, close as uh, the other countries like the UAE and Bahrain, Morocco, Sudan, et cetera, which were part of the Abraham Accords that you did such a great job in helping uh, to bring about. Nonetheless, it's quite clear that uh, Saudi Arabia is is playing a constructive role in relations uh, throughout the region. And um, Iran, on the other hand, is just a a demon. It's really an evil power. Uh, And we don't use those words much anymore. Uh, President Reagan, again, I referred to him for the second time in the podcast, didn't hesitate to call the Soviet Union the evil empire. And he was right. Uh, And uh, uh, Iran is an evil country by any standard. So you can't, you can't for the sake of I don't know what accommodation, a temporary peace, whatever, blur those differences over and think the world is going to be as safe for our children and grandchildren here in the United States, regardless of whether Iran has more power in the Middle East 10 or 20 years from now, or Saudi Arabia, or the UAE, or Israel does. And obviously, it will make an enormous difference in the region where we continue to have vital uh, uh, security and policy interests, and it will matter to our security here in the United States as well. I mean, an empowered, strengthened Islamic Republic of Iran will threaten the presence of the U.S. uh, diplomatic and military forces in the Middle East, and uh, it will increasingly have the capacity through the development of its ballistic missile program and nuclear weapons, God forbid, to strike uh, the homeland of the United States of America. We, We can't let that happen. Saudi Arabia would never do that. Uh, obviously, the UAE, Israel would also never do it. So, you know, you've got to choose sides here. You can't blur over differences. And uh, it's pretty clear that we should be on the side of Israel and the Sunni Arab world and against this current regime in Iran, hoping and praying that the majority of people in Iran who don't support the regime will find a way, uh, like the heroes that they are, to rise up and change the regime.
0: Indeed, you talk about Saudi modernizing, opening up to the world, reforming. And I have to say, from the minute I stepped into the White House in early 2017, not only through when I left at the end of 2019, but even the time since, I continue to see tremendous strides by Saudi Arabia. Yet in the same podcast, Senator Murphy said that he wants to play harder ball, those were his words, with the Saudis. He's essentially saying, line up with our approach to the region or you lose us. I don't think that's in the interest of the United States, and I don't think we even have that kind of power. Do you think we have that kind of power against Saudi, Israel, and our other friends and allies?
1: Well, the, we, we, we're we not going to have it unless we're involved in the region, and having that kind of power is really uh, important. Um, the, all those countries, in the end, uh, Israel certainly, but but the Sunni Arab countries also, want to depend on the United States. They do depend on us and they only turn away, away from us if they feel they can't trust us to uh, be with them. And uh, our our uh, involvement and our values are part of what's moving um, the current leadership of Saudi Arabia, particularly the Crown Prince, Mohammed bin Salman, to uh, open up that society. And and uh, again, uh, we all know that Khashoggi murder was a dreadful event, uh, et cetera, et cetera. But uh, I've spent some time in Saudi Arabia. I've met with uh, Crown Prince uh, MBS two times at length. And uh, I I believe he's quite sincerely a reformer in part uh, because he wants his own people to become part of the modern world, uh, including uh, interacting more openly with the United States of America. And frankly, uh, he sees a generation rising of Saudis, young Saudis, that that will push him, whether he wants it or, or not, to uh, to get them into the world, um, uh, because they see on the internet how how everyone else in the world is living. They're bright. Uh, they, they they don't they don't they they're not into a an old uh, fight uh, against Israel. They they would just as well uh, interact with Israel for mutual benefit, uh, and that's something, obviously, uh, we should encourage. I mean, if you ask me, yes, before, Jason, what advice I'd give uh, President Biden about the Middle East and about Iran, well, about the region generally, I would say, Mr. President Biden, my advice to you is to uh, move back from focusing on Iran. Um, it, it, that's not going to get you anywhere. They're a, they're a rejectionist extremist power. Uh, you want to really do something that will make a difference. Uh, build on the Abraham Accords. And the most significant way you could build on it is to uh, try to convince the, the Saudi, uh, the Saudis to come into those Accords or something like it. And and then that would also, I think, lead to some progress, certainly make it more likely, a progress between uh, the Israelis and the Palestinians. So uh, I, I think the choices here are clear, but the consequences of making the wrong choice and just going easy on Iran, I think are are devastating uh, to our future security and the security of the Middle East, which no matter how much any regime says it wants to get out of there, it's impossible. We're too entwined, uh, both in terms of our values, our religious history, uh, but also our our, our economy and our security. Uh, Look, we were attacked there. We're coming up to the 20th anniversary of 9-11. Al-Qaeda operated out of Afghanistan, but so much of the ideology that motivated and organized Al-Qaeda to strike us on 9-11-01 came from the Middle East. And uh, we, we ought to be there on the side of the modernists and, and those who on the reformists in the Arab world, uh, not uh, playing some distant game in which we sort of balance everybody off uh, against each other as if they were all the same. They're not the same. It's clear that our allies are Israel and the Sunni Arab countries, and this regime, uh, I hope temporarily in power in Iran, is our enemy.
0: Yeah, I fully agree. And you know, I know you mentioned Khashoggi and the horrific, the horrific murder of Khashoggi. But I think we can't continue to look at Saudi Arabia and MBS only through the lens of Khashoggi. It is a much deeper, Correct. more complex relationship. I've spent countless hours with the crown prince. And I am just incredibly impressed with where he wants to take his country. And I know that the people there who I meet are incredibly excited about him. So I don't think it's the U.S. role to dictate to Saudi Arabia who should be their leader and how they should conduct themselves. I think we have to accept that they are a very important friend and ally of the U.S., even if we have some differences. Uh,
1: Yeah, I I appreciate what what you said. And obviously, it's based on your own experience there. So it validates my own Um, reaction. And uh, look, nobody's perfect, including us. Uh, But on balance, uh, I see in in the regime in Saudi Arabia, uh, a country really trying to uh, move forward and and progress in a way that is very positive in our, uh, according to our American value system, and in terms of the interests of our allies in the region, including, of course, Israel. So uh, we, we ought to encourage that and uh, not uh, uh, blindly stand in the way.
0: Last question on Iran and Saudi Arabia. One quote that really surprised me from Senator Murphy was that he's met regularly over the years with Iranian Foreign Minister Zarif, and although he acknowledged he takes everything Zarif says with what he described as a shaker of salt, he said Zarif told him that Iran's missiles are pointed at Saudi Arabia, not Israel. Whether that's true or not, we can, um, we can skip over that for the moment, but obviously Iran has many missiles pointed through Hezbollah at Le- uh, from Lebanon into Israel. Uh, and in any event, Iran's leadership frequently calls for the destruction of Israel, the removal of Israel as a cancer in the Middle East. How can anyone take Zarif's comment remotely seriously?
1: Well, I was, I was very uh, really upset about that comment uh, from Chris Murphy, because it's, it's, I say this respectfully, because he's not naive, but that was a naive comment. I mean, Zarif uh, is a, a skillful diplomat. But uh, as, as somebody uh, who was a foreign minister of another foreign country once said to me, he had had a meeting with Zarif. He said it was a very positive meeting on which there was a real meeting of the mind. But he le- he leaned forward and he said to me, you know, Senator, I'm not sure Zarif represents his own government. And, you know, there was something to that. So he puts the good face on but uh, the, the country and its foreign policy are controlled by the supreme leader and now by uh, the mass murderer, Raisi. And uh, you, you just, uh, you, you got to understand that uh, as you deal with them. Also, you're right. I mean, I, I, I okay, very nice that Zarif said uh, the missiles of Iran are pointed at Saudi Arabia. That, that's, that's also offensive to us and contrary to our uh, security interests. Uh, obviously, uh, we'd also be upset if they were pointed at Israel. I think they're pointed at Israel from all that uh, I know. And you're absolutely right. You know, we're, We've lived through enough in uh, the 20th century and now this century to know that when countries say words, even words that seem so extreme that, that they you know, might not be real, you have to believe them because they may well believe them. And I think when uh, when the leadership in Iran constantly castigates Israel uh, as, a, as a, a devil country and, and uh, do, uh, doesn't belong there, and they threaten to uh, destroy Israel, they say uh, much the same about the United States. I mean, uh, they, they go up by the tens of thousands in uh, rallies and, and scream death to America, death to Israel, death to the big Satan death to the little saint. And uh, we, we would be uh, foolish, not just naive, if, if we did not listen to that and understand that that and the comments of the Supreme Leader and the President uh, really uh, matter more than uh, Zarif statements, whatever they may be on a given day.
0: Senator, you introduced legislation that led to the creation of the Department of Homeland Security. Uh, Obviously, such an important part of keeping ourselves, our families safe. What changes do you think are needed in today's much more dangerous and more complicated world?
1: Yeah, well, well that that was one of the uh, most satisfying and difficult legislative experiences I had in my 24 years in the Senate. I mean, we we did all uh, pull together after 9-11. Uh, to create the Department of Homeland Security, to adopt the 9-11 Commission, to adopt the report recommendations of the 9-11 Commission. I mean, there was some partisan wrangling, but basically it yielded to um, the demand of the American people that we do something to make sure a lot of things, to make sure that 9-11 or anything like it would not happen again. And we did have battles in this long legislative struggle to get these... uh, uh, changes, these reforms adopted, but interestingly, Jason, they were not primarily um, partisan. They were more um, turf battles. I mean, uh, the Defense Department, for instance, didn't want its intelligence uh, uh, forces to come under the new director of National Intelligence, and we had a, a, a oh, a big battle over that. But uh, anyway, it was a major accomplishment, and I, I give the department credit uh homeland security department for the fact that we haven't had another attack on our homeland anywhere uh, near like 9 11. we've obviously had a series of uh, attempts and, and and some of them uh successful at smaller terrorist attacks but a lot of them uh, more have been stopped really as a result of the way in which we uh, put up our defenses and coordinated uh our resources um and force the agencies of the federal government to work together in the department or under the uh, director of national intelligence and the national counterterrorism center so um it, it's a, it's a big department and it, it's not the integration of all those 20 plus agencies into one department to try to achieve the uh, the benefits of coordination um also have, have run into their own kinds of turf battles, but uh, it's been worth it. Uh, and uh, the, the department is, is actually gonna be the topic as we approach the 20th anniversary of 9-11. A lot of look back and is there anything we should be doing differently? I, I do worry that there will be an attempt by some to diminish the counterterrorism role of the Department of Homeland Security uh, because of the rise of other threats Um, that are also significant, like uh, cyber attacks. And uh, I don't think we can choose between which threats to American security, the Homeland Security uh, Department, should be expected to defend us from. Uh, uh, Terrorism remains a a serious threat. I mean, ISIS is still out there, al-Qaeda is out there, and uh, they still want to strike us here at home. We also have different kinds of domestic terrorist groups, including um, the various uh, 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 hate groups that, that become terrorist groups. So, uh, but, but we, we do need to raise our game against uh, cyber attacks, and, and I think the Homeland Security Department has a big role to play in that, and they can do both. And I, I think it's really important that they do both.
0: It's a huge understatement for me to say that there's a massive political division in our country. Do you think it can be fixed? Will it just get worse? Was it like it? Was it like this when you were a senator? Is bridging the gap possible, or are we just too far gone at this point?
1: So it's much worse today than during the twenty-four years I was a senator, which was nineteen eighty-nine to two thousand thirteen. Um, I must say that when I first came in in eighty-nine, I was surprised that the place was more partisan than I thought it would be, including on foreign policy, where I thought the ideal was the Vandenberg Truman ideal of Uh, Partisan politics ends at the water's edge. Uh, It's not to say we don't have disagreements on foreign policy, but they can't be partisan because it weakens America and strengthens uh, our foreign uh, enemies. But as time went on, uh, it it just got worse and worse. And uh, for a lot of reasons that we know, too much money in politics, the media became partisan, uh, the, the apportionment of the districts encouraged. Um, The the left of the Democratic Party, the right of the Republican Party made it harder for moderates or centrists to be elected or or for incumbents who really were moderates or centrists uh, to act that way because they feared primaries back home. But um, the public is fed up with it. And uh, normally in our democracy, if the public has a strong feeling for or against something, ultimately people who want to hold political office will change. You and I are talking today at a time when we've just seen a, a, a very uh, encouraging triumph of bipartisan centrism, I would call it. Uh, and by that, I mean the adoption of the um, infrastructure, the bipartisan infrastructure bill, um, which was supported by members of both, party and, both parties in the House and Senate and by the Biden administration. And to me, the really significant thing here is that this did not, this bill did not begin with President Biden or with Senator McConnell or or, or, uh, Republican Leader McCarthy or or Pelosi or Schumer. It began with rank and file members of both parties. I'm very proud to say, because I chair a group called No Labels, which works at uh, Bipartisan Solutions in Congress, that a lot of the folks that we supported were actively involved in the House through something called the House Problem Solvers Caucus. And then in the Senate, uh, in a group they called, and they ended up calling the group of 20, uh, 10 Democrats, 10 Republicans in the Senate. But they they made the difference. They developed this program. They went to the White House. The president saw it as an opportunity. Uh, he negotiated with them. And not, e- not, not easy. It's long, like as the work we did on the Homeland Security bill, uh, it, it took a lot of effort by uh, the members of Congress and the administration to get it done. But here it was, it passed the Senate, 69 votes with Senator Schumer and uh, Senator McConnell supporting it. it. Its its future is not certain in the House uh, because of all the complicating factors going on. But uh, for now, I think uh, uh, to answer your question, is it possible to get back to some bipartisanship in Congress, which clearly the majority of the American people on every poll you look at want um, almost more than anything else from the government, get together, work with each other, solve some of our problems. This experience on the infrastructure bill shows that it can happen. Um, Will it happen again on something else? uh, All I can say is I hope and pray that it does, but at least we've proven, again, uh, we can do it. Or they can do it, and God bless them for for making it happen.
0: I'm an observant Jew. I've been terribly fortunate. Uh, Donald Trump was always respectful to me, both before the White House, during the White House, the entire U.S. government, the entire U.S. government, countries around the world, including Arab countries, were always respectful. What was your experience, and what do you say to those to whom religion is important? Um, can they serve in the government, and what should they? Um, what kind of inspiration can you give them?
1: Well, I really appreciate that question, and obviously, I appreciate the extent to which you were true to your faith in office. Um, I found uh, uh, throughout my career, going back to when I started as a state senator, that uh, and and when I uh, wouldn't come to political events on Friday night and Saturday, because it is my Sabbath uh, day of rest, uh, sometimes people would be upset by it because, you know, somebody who helped me out in the last campaign and all that, but when I told them I was doing it uh, for religious reasons, and they saw that I was doing it consistently, they not only accepted it, but they respected it. And generally speaking, the faith that my parents gave me—not just the faith, but the faith that in America uh, we're really we have not only the right, but but the opportunity to be what we are—and and it helps the country overall if we don't uh, try to assimilate and be like everybody else. And I must say that at every stage of my career, um, uh, you know, I got elected a senator uh, for four terms in a state where the Jewish population was is and is two, two and a half percent. Obviously, people weren't voting for or against me based on my religion, which they all knew because the fact that I was an observant Jew was, was prominent. When I ran for vice president, um, Al Gore took a risk, you might say, but he had a confidence that. Uh, the American people um, were ready to judge somebody based on the quality of of their candidacy, not on their religion, and and he was right. I mean, I don't want to relitigate the 2000 election, but we did get more votes, and that's a way of saying that the American people were open to that difference. I will also say to mirror what you said, Jason, that I found in my travels around the world, and I traveled a lot, particularly with my dear friend, uh, John McCain, that uh, whether it was asking for uh, a food that was kosher or saying, oh, I'm sorry, I can't do that. I can't come to that meeting because it's Friday night, Saturday. I don't drive, and et cetera, et cetera. In the end, uh, people respected, um, uh, I think, me more for it than uh, otherwise. And, and that included in uh, Muslim countries. It, it, it certainly included in other countries, um, uh, such as uh, uh, throughout. Uh, Asia. I'll just tell you, uh, there's too many stories I can tell, but I'll I'll tell you a, a quick funny story. I was at uh, a dinner years ago. I went to uh, China and Hong Kong with uh, Senator Connie Mack, a dear friend who was a Republican senator from Florida. It was probably 1997, and we were honored at a, a dinner at the Ministry of Foreign Affairs in Beijing. I was seated uh, next to the foreign minister, and I had ordered vegetarian food. Um, which is about as close as I thought I could get to kosher. And uh, the foreign minister said to me, uh, at one point, I noticed, Senator, you're eating vegetarian food. Are you uh, perhaps a Buddhist? And so I said, no, I'm, I'm an Orthodox Jew. Oh, I understand completely. Uh, I respect you very much for keeping to your traditions. And then he went on to a whole um, rap about two ancient people, the Chinese, and the jewish people and uh how we have a lot to learn from each other so uh i would say to anybody and this is true now not just in politics but in the professions and business and every walk of certainly american life thank god notwithstanding the fear of rising anti-semitism in my opinion we we are blessed to live at a time where you're not going to have to choose and i'd say this to young people. Uh, You're not going to have to choose between your religious observance and faith and your secular ambitions. You can in America uh, today, you can have a both. And I obviously hope and pray that that never changes. I believe it will not uh, because we've crossed that bridge. And I I certainly benefited from that myself in my own life. And uh, obviously you did, Jason. But, you know, I like to think also that the country benefited because we were confident enough to get involved in public service and uh, to try to make uh, a difference. And I think that's really more important than um, our particular faith. Anyway, thanks for asking a question. Thanks for the way in which you um, were true to your faith while serving a cause really uh, much larger than yourself.
0: Thank you, Senator. Thank you for sharing your wisdom and insight and personal stories on The Diplomat and for being my guest. I really appreciate it.
1: Thanks, Jason. I, I think you have a future in this podcast business, you know, so it's been a pleasure to be on with you and I wish you the best.
0: I really appreciated it, Senator Lieberman being frank about his thoughts about the complicated issues that we discussed. He didn't shy away from sharing his thoughts about Senator Murphy's interview, and his thoughts about the region, and I hope that people will find his insight informative. I know I did. I also think he shared a sense of optimism, which I am grateful for. Optimism that despite the deep political divide we find ourselves in, there is hope. I don't think the 1.2 trillion Senate infrastructure package is the right approach, and who knows what will happen with the 3.5 trillion budget resolution and the unbelievable amount of social spending included in these. I don't think we could afford it and I think we are saddling ourselves and our kids with huge amounts of things we can't afford. But I think Senator Lieberman is right to focus on the idea that different sides can indeed work together and I hope they can work together to come up with a more sane approach to what's happening with the budget. Senator Lieberman is an example of the type of politician who one can have deep, respectful and meaningful conversations with. I hope people try to emulate his approach. I especially liked his reflection on what it was like to be an observant Jew while holding office. I thought that his words were inspirational and largely mirrored my own experience. I hope you enjoyed this podcast, and thanks for listening to me on The Diplomat, brought to you by Newsweek.